Warning, the following show is intended for mature audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. We are live back. Coffee with the Johns, Friday, 8 a.m. as usual, June 18th. Got a lot that we are going to be talking about the macro economy, the local economy, um, mostly inflation. Uh, Inflation is a... we said it, it's here, it's been here, and now what we're seeing is... Um, government recognize. Yeah, they're starting to recognize well, the it. the government or the Fed is, or is just like... But, but they're calling it uh, transitionary. Well, there's a lot of people that are like, mm, I don't know about transitionary, buddy. <laughs> so, but they're getting closer, because at least they're acknowledging it now. Now they know it exists, you know, so we'll see what the branding is um, <clears throat> moving forward. We're going to be talking a lot about that. We're going to be talking about also some real estate stuff, uh, quite a bit of it, as far as uh, a few topics I wanted to hit on a, from a mastermind that we did. Uh, we do a mastermind here in San Antonio with a, a few select investors and some really excellent topics and points were brought up about foreclosures, buy and hold, everything. So we're going to be hitting on those points. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. Hit that thumbs up if you're enjoying. Got a lot coming in. Oh, that was the first thumbs up. <laughs> um, with that being said, I am your host, John Barbera, and with me as always is co-host, Mr. John Barr. Good week, sir. Great week. Great week. Rain, beautiful weather. Complain saying, oh, it's raining, I can't work. Oh, oh they, They'll still complain, but they'll figure out something else to... Why they're not working. Oh, no, they actually, well, that's you. But, uh, <laughs> right, I don't work. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a great week. A lot of stuff in the news this week, uh, especially on the topics of like, especially like it all kind of all led up to it. It's kind of fun to watch like uh, some of these big, uh, investors, hedge fund people, people that are actually are in the economy and doing the work in Mac perspective, not just running policies from like some PhD, Harvard, getting paid by the government kind of stuff, where like things saying like, Leading up to this week, it was all kind of uh, coming together. Like, if they don't do this, you really need to be worried about doing this stuff. And uh, then, like, the Fed comes out and, like, drastically changed their policy of interest rate hikes. Yeah. And how the market absorbed that and reacted to it, um, which is, I mean, good for lumber prices. Cause that was one of the shining spots that fell the most. But, whew, thank God. Oh, um, lumber prices really took a tumble. I mean, it hit its peak at, what, it was like sixteen, seventeen hundred. And last I saw, it was it was around nine hundred at that point. Futures? Yeah, the in the, no, not the index. The what do they call it? The price per thousand board foot. Thousand board foot. That's what it was. So it had hit seventeen hundred, and then it went back down to like in the nine hundreds. Last I saw. So I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's a lot of things that's like. Looking at the economy, looking at everything, what is it that they're going to do to keep uh, propping things up? Because, I mean, it is that. They are propping it up. You know, this is not because the market is strong on its own. This has been propped up the whole time. So it's kind of seeing how they keep that, that balloon inflated as we move forward. Uh, what do you want to start with? Do we start with the economy, real estate? Um, Go for it. Pick. Well... I think we always start with real estate, so let's keep it going. <laughs> so you, let's see, you have on here, I think, were those articles from last week? Home buyers are growing, weary. Um, 
Yeah, so I was looking up what the current price for board foot was, and it's at just a, just over a thousand per board feet, down forty one percent from the record of seventeen eleven in May. So, yeah, that's a big good. drop. It's only double what it normally is. Well, three times last pre pandemic, I had seen it was trading between three and four hundred. So it, I'm look, it's already, it trades in the range of three hundred to five hundred per board okay. feet normally. Well, we hit all the way to seventeen. I was like, but those those are also futures. They're not what they currently are. We're still eating the ultra high lumber prices from May in June. So they're saying like July, August, September timeframe, you're gonna start seeing pressures start to leave. Um, yeah, on them. So, all right. So instead of real estate, because it doesn't seem like no, I was just looking. You're on the topic anything. of it. That's, that was it. Um, we'll go into inflation, uh, and we have a. I was reading an article that was, they said, hot inflation may have become scorching in May and is expected to hit a 28-year high. So the consensus forecast for the core consumer price index, which excludes food and energy, is 3.5% on a year-over-year basis, according to the Dow Jones. Um, that's the fastest annual pace in 28 years. And... It will be hot. It could be up to 5%, said Diane Swank, chief economist at Grant Thornton. Uh, the worst of the heat is going to be the second quarter in terms of headline. It will be interesting to see what it looks like um, when you strip out the extreme. So what they talk about headline inflation is actually including food and energy, the, the actual real inflation that we all care about. Um, it, uh, I think we're still going to be to have a warm summer when you have a surge pricing kicking in for everything from airfares to hotels. And investors are debating whether the period of rising prices is transient, as the Fed believes, or more pervasive and persistent. If it's the latter, the concern is the central bank would then be forced to back away from its easy policies that have helped keep interest rates low and boosted liquidity and provided fuel for the stock market gains. The last time it was this high was July of 92. So Swank expects uh, headline inflation to reach 4.9% year over year uh, in April. And then the report did come out yesterday and it actually hit 5% um, with the core inflation was around 3%. So, but the one that matters is the headline inflation because it includes, like we said, food and energy. So you have food and energy based on what they track already hit a 20-year high, right? And we are looking at it from every other, you know, real cost of living. And it's been ridiculously higher in so many other areas. So they say, I'm worried about <clears throat> rent and owner's equivalent rent because it should go up. Um, it had declared. So shelters more than 30% of CPI and rent costs have bottomed in some cities. The issue is it could have longer legs and keep overall inflation measures void more than people expect. So reading this article, I mean, and she goes on, it's a excellent article. And like we said before, uh, going to the website after this live and you can read the articles yourself. We strongly recommend you read the articles yourself. So you see all the data. They have charts. They have a lot of things. But the, what they kind of summarize everything up is like airfares, hotels, and event emission all registered big price increases and contributed to the spike in CPI inflation in April. 
But these categories are merely recovering declines seen last year, and the Fed is unlikely to be swayed if their price if if their prices continue to accelerate. Rent owners equivalent rent in medical care services inflations are muted. So here's my thing, my question to you, right? Is this really transitionary? So what does that mean? Is this because everybody hit the pause button during COVID and now everybody's like out trying to catch up with all the things that they didn't get to do before, which is why we're seeing travel hit like all time highs. Flush with cash too. Right. So do you believe that this is transitionary, which is like once the people kind of get it out their systems, it's going to level out again? Or do you think that this is something that's like, no, this Um, is going to keep going? Well, I think it's something if like the Fed, you know, I think that's something that the Fed truly controls and has an ability on. Like if they keep things super low, uh, as far as interest rates go, then it's not going to be transitionary. But if they get ahead of it and they start raising interest rates after this kind of piece, I think they can put the cap on it and keep it tampered down. It's like, yes, once everything got out, the, everything gets ramped up. The the airlines staff up. The lumber price, lumber mills, everybody gets an investment back in. The shipping uh, constraints and everything kind of get figured out and like things kind of normalize and get back to it. I think it would start to level out again. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they keep things like super low, and everyone can borrow credit cards through the roof. Money's free. It's like then people are going to get that drug, enjoy it, and keep going with it. And yeah. I think that's where they could. Uh... So relating this to real estate, another article that I had read, but the guy the guy was a little full of himself on how he was writing the article. Like he kept reciting how cool he is and how many things he's talked about in the past. I was like, all right, what's the point of the article? But one of the things that he did hit on was that in 2008, what led to the 2008 crash was easy credit, right? Which led to people having a lot of money, a lot of access to money. It led people that should not have access to money, access to money, which that doesn't seem to be the issue now, right? They had a huge credit boom pretty much, which led to the housing bust, right? People were buying houses that shouldn't have been buying houses. But now the banks, because of that, they've tightened a lot of the requirements. Like now a lot of the people that even we see buying houses can actually afford the houses that they're buying. They, they're qualified correctly. You know, they're, they are putting money down. As long as they have jobs. Yeah. So, but they're qualifying. They're not buying anything too out of their range or anything like that. So we're not seeing a credit boom. So that does affect the lack of influence. You know, you're not having a credit boom. You're not having people going out there doing all that massive spending. But yet, what we're seeing, especially in San Antonio, like you said before, sales year over year have not dropped. So that means as inventory is being put out in the market, it's being consumed. So we're having a lot of people coming into the market buying, a lot of people buying homes everywhere. How is this going to affect inflation overall when you still have so many people buying, people that can't afford to buy? People that can't afford to buy, they're not getting easy credit. So I'm looking at it. I'm like, how is this going to really affect the economy in a negative way? Like, what are you seeing as a negative impact from what the Fed has done, from inflation being what it is? Do you see it kind of lasting or do you see it more like, no, this could be something that can stable off rather quickly? As a, okay. As far as what? Are you saying like this... Economy staying where it's at and not crashing, 
or going down or declining. Right. right. Like I don't I don't you see it crashing, do you see it correcting in any way based I mean, on how the Fed is printing, how the Fed is putting in money in the economy, based on how people are bidding up houses? Well, no, I think I think they're wanting it to. It, it cuz I mean there's a the Putting cash into the system because I think they want inflation. They want higher inflation. Like they need to inflate away all the debt from basically 2000 to 2020. Mm-hmm. And because like, the issues that were going on with the reports, they needed cash into the system. They needed liquidity. They needed massive amount of money. I mean, around the world, it wasn't just the consumers around it. I mean, we have a rising dollar right now. And that's one thing that's caused by the <laughs> fact that one thing the Fed said is like there is a need for dollars in the system. Because it's been pumped into so much debt that it's like, hey, we need cash back to keep things going. So it's it's one of those that, um, and it might where it will be. This is how the new normal. They say, oh, the, it's being propped up. It's like, no, this is how the economy runs now. That that is it. I mean, it's not like the economy is not what it was twenty years ago, and in two thousand, it wasn't what it was in nineteen eighty. Like everything adapts and changes. Yeah. So I, I think it's if they do start raising interest rates, it is going to stable off a lot of things. That, I mean, obviously, mortgages are going to get more expensive. Uh, so you're going to price a lot of people out. It's going to be harder for economies to um, – or companies to grow because the credit gets more expensive. So I think it needs to happen to do that. But they're trying to get inflation up off of these bottoms because you have bigger problems when it comes to, like, pension funds that have to target 7%. But it's like, where do you get 7% anymore? Because 10 years ago, you could go – or 20, 30 years ago, you could just put it in 10-year uh, – 10-year U.S. Treasury, that was paying 8 9%. So now it's like it's down at one and a half. It causes huge problems to fixed incomes and pension funds, things like that. So I think they're trying to get a point where they want inflation to run hot so they can bo- boost interest rates to 5 6 7 8% to really slow things down. But then now people can invest. I mean, there's several articles I have about banks are like they're holding cash. They're not investing it. Right. And it's like because like – they see inflation coming, but they're also one of those that they have half a trillion or half a trillion dollars in cash. They're not investing it because they want to have the opportunities to invest at higher interest rates. So here's the next thing, right? Then in from 2008 to 2019-2020, they've been trying to get inflation and they couldn't get it. It didn't matter what the hell they did, they could not get inflation going. And as soon as they started raising interest rates, the economy would slow down even further, right? We were in that kind of weak economy. It was just, it was growing. I think it was growing okay because it was growing steadily. It was growing, um, you know, a lot more conservatively than prior years of just like kind of hitting a boom like it did back in the early 2000s, right? Where from like 2002 to 2005, it just freaking shot up. So it was already kind of a a quote-unquote weak economy prior to this. Now we're seeing a massive inflation that spiked very quickly because of people getting back out. They're flush with cash, all these things. So how do you think the Fed is looking at it as far as saying, you know, hey, this inflation, okay, yeah, we see it, but we don't see this inflation lasting and we need to keep pushing inflation because as soon as these people kind of like cool off, it's going to drop right back to pre-pandemic levels. And that's not good because we still need high inflation. So- how can the Fed manipulate this? That's what I'm kind of curious about because it does. It didn't seem like before the pandemic they could manipulate interest rates going, uh, inflation going well, up. Well, because there wasn't um, uh, fiscal policy to go along with it. So you have like the Fed can't do it themselves. Like they have to have fiscal. You have monetary policy, which is the Fed, and you have the fiscal policy, which is the government. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't just like pump cash into the economy. And, but like, they were. 
they were doing buybacks and things like that, but I mean, they weren't doing it on the scale they're doing now, mm-hmm. and they're doing it weren't doing it on the scale they were um, even in two thousand eight. Yeah, so but like, now they talked about raising. I, I, I've heard they were thinking about raising interest rates. What at the later part of twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, raising interest rates and doing things like that. But if we're seeing this kind of inflation, you're essentially raising interest rates in what is still a weak economy, because it's not fundamentally strong. So it's just propped up because of all the money that's been dumped into it. So well, then the, when you raise prop, it, it's, it's, it's going to... Uh, so I say, it's not propped up anymore. That's just how it runs. Like that is uh, the government buys, or the Fed buys junk stuff to keep cash in the system. But they can't pull back. But they don't want to. They don't need yeah, to. Yeah, they do. That's but what that's, I'm saying. They were saying that even starting even, this August, they're thinking of a pullback. No. Uh, the article I was saying, like mm-hmm. they, they specifically said, like he talked about raising interest rates in that later half of 2023. He said, but there was no mention of when they're going to stop the buybacks. And it's like they said, like he mentioned, like, well, we talked about possibly talking about it, and that's really about it. And right. it's like, like they're not talking, like they're saying they're putting a date to interest rates, but they're not putting a date to pulling back interest buybacks because even before this they weren't buying they started buying back in december of 2019 before that they had stopped buying back Mm -hmm. i was like that's when they started because that's when your repo rates went crazy and they started buying a lot of short-term cash because there was liquidity problems and so now with the pandemic they use that as a opportunity to combine monetary policy and fiscal policy to inject cash into the economy because they can get money into the hands of the financial markets but the Fed cannot get money into the hands of consumers. Right. That's, the, that's what the government does. The government sure. pumped all these packages and gave out all the stimulus checks. Of two, I think it's a total of like two grand we got. Well, now the child like tax credit is coming the out child too. tax credits, all this stuff. It's like that the government has to do. So now between the government and the Fed, both providing liquidity, trying to now sound like they didn't get inflation before like mm. they needed it by just the Fed doing it. Now it's like okay. Now when you combine fiscal and monetary policy, getting they're obviously getting the inflation now that they want and the economy needs. So the economy needs that inflation up there to get liquidity into the market to wipe away a lot of old debt. And so now at that point, when it gets too hot and the economy is running through and running along just fine, where it's like it's getting too hot now, they have the opportunity to actually raise interest rates above one percent. So they have it's like they can raise it to two, three, four, five percent, and the economy can take it. Because now that uh, the economy is moving, you have a lot of assets, you have a lot of productivity, you have a lot of growth, and you're getting too much of it, getting ahead of itself, they actually can put the lid back on it. Because before, I agree with you, it was too weak of economy because they were hitting the 2% portion and they were cutting it off. Now they're like, we need to get to 2, 3, we need to get to 3, 4, 5, 6% to the economy before they can start tampering off so the economy can take interest rate hikes. So you're saying that it's not propped up right now? Hey, podcast, thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210-794-9898. That's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information, things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying like the, the buyback thing is like, mm-hmm. I think it's something that's here to stay. I was like, that's just how, that's the new economy. Like, but if no- they decide to taper that buyback, 
What about it? If they decide to taper the buyback, how does that not affect the economy? Because it, that yeah, taper, would. right, that's what I'm saying, though. You're if saying it, that the economy is strong right now on its own. No, I'm not okay. saying that at all. It's like okay. if they cut that stuff off right now, right. it probably would it would tank it again. Mm-hmm. As like there's too much, and we need too much liquidity because like where's all these this these rise in prices? Like it could not do that until those things stable off and find the efficiencies in the economy again, and prices starting to uh, capitalism does what capitalism does and drives prices down and finds the efficiency for the cash. As like right now, it it can't do that because that's why you have lumber prices, you have oil prices, you have all these things through the roof is because you have massive supply chain issues and reallocation of labor and all these problems. The economy needs to figure those things out first. Before it can, but back on. then the economy needs to figure that out. Not the government, not the Federal Reserve needs to figure that out. They're propping things in the meantime, which I think make those things harder to recover. Right? Like we talked about before, like uh, the truck drivers, all the people that are not going back to work. Yeah. And um, there was another article I just glanced at this morning that they were saying even more people are quitting their jobs. Right? And so it's like. You're having more labor shortages. We're seeing it right now, even in the construction space of, uh, of just labor in general. Well, that's, so, but that's something that's been going on for decades. That hasn't because no, of the no, pandemic. no, no. But what I'm saying is that if you keep helping it, it, it takes longer for that to recover. Versus if you don't help it, people don't have anything to grab onto, so they gotta go back to work. They have to go figure something out to fend for themselves to be able to survive. Yeah. And that's going to get supply chains moving again. That gets everything moving. But when you are pumping more money, when you're pumping more uh, regulations and things like, you know, we had the forbearance, we have the um, moratoriums for evictions, all of these things. Yeah. So now people don't have to really go fend for themselves because they're being protected by all this. So it's delaying them getting back into the job market. It's delaying uh, restaurants from. Well, no, but that's know, so we've so, talked about this. Like uh-huh. they're, they're raising, they're trying to enforce wages become right. higher it's like they've been stagnant for since the 70s they really haven't risen much as far as like outside of inflation and things like that where now you companies have to survive they have to produce yeah. so like okay people don't come back to work at five dollars an hour ten dollars right. an hour fifteen dollars an hour okay we're going to adjust to seventeen dollars an hour we're going to adjust to eighteen dollars an hour eventually people are going to go back to work even the unemployment benefits like you're like if you're getting max employment benefits in Texas, you are getting 32, what's that, like 40 grand a year, 35, 40 grand a year on max benefits. And even then, like you had to have a pretty damn high paying job beforehand to get the max benefits on unemployment in right, Texas. Right. Yeah. So it's like your lifestyle went from 60 grand a year to 30 grand a year with max employment benefits and the government helping you. Mm-hmm. So it's like your income, like you still have a $30,000 a year gap. And people that, and in psychology, you know as well as I do, if you're making 60 grand a year, you're living the life of 60, 65, 70 grand a year. So now you got to cut it in half. So pumping this liquidity into the market, people not going to work, getting this extra cash, they're going out to spend, it's finding its assets, it's going to find it, and it's like it's going to raise the cost of living. It is going to make prices go it's up. It's going has. to make gas. It's going to make houses go up. It's going to make all that stuff. But like, I think that's what they want. That's what they need. That's why they're tapering. They're keeping those programs going. They're keeping inflation or interest rates low. It's like they're trying to reset the economy to the problems that were being caused in 2018, 2019, before even the pandemic. Yeah. They use this as an opportunity to reset the economy from the bar it was at to a whole new level so they can get a whole new debt and create a whole bunch of new credit because the capacity is now there. Because before there wasn't the capacity, and they, the the Fed couldn't come in so and just be that, like, pump that money even, into it. How's that capitalism? 
That's that's uh, what was it? Richard Duncan called it creditism. Well, that's what I said. That's exactly what it is. Because like they need the- that's not capitalism. You're not letting the market correct itself and do what it needs to. You're no. manipulating well, you, everything they haven't done to that get there. Since like, the- all right. Yeah. So going back to it, this is not. This is a semi quasi free market that we're in, right? So. My thing is like whenever, so the Fed manipulates everything by what they say. They are very uh, astute with the way they say shit, right? So yeah. they, when they need a confidence, they're like, one word. we are not raising interest rates until like 2024, 2025 or something like that. So what did that do? Gave everybody the confidence to just get out, leverage, we're good, everything's good. Now, uh, like I said, I read in those articles that it was going to be coming back uh, possibly uh, 2022, 2023. So now people are like, okay, you know, what is that going to mean? Not a lot of people are feeling very confident. So those kind of things might force more companies to kind of be a little more reserved, you know, maybe not get into so much debt because it's like, shit, I don't know, you know, what's this going to look like if they raise interest rates again? Will the economy weaken again? You understand? So do you think like those kind of things that they're saying, they're kind of testing out how are people going to react? Because usually when they do end up raising interest rates, it doesn't move the economy all that much because it was already factored in way before. Right. So when they're saying this, will the economy now start factoring in a possible rate hike, you know, in the coming year or so that's maybe slows down the economy right now. And then we need further intervention from the Federal Reserve and stuff like that. Well, I think that's why they're letting it run hot now in the hopes that it doesn't. As like I think they are trying to like the economy runs the the bond buying program stuff that's providing liquidity the market's providing dollars to the economy the, the world essentially yeah. because everyone talks about I mean I have several like an article in here that said the there's issues with the, the way the Fed's doing this as far as ruining jeopardizing the dollar's reserve currency around the world essentially. Um, or its ability to become that, like another currency come take its place. Right. But it's also one of the things that, like, that doesn't happen overnight. Everyone's like, no, oh, it's sure. going to, like, America's done, it's doomed. It's like, they don't go from being, num- we don't go from being number one to zero overnight, I mean, even over a decade or two. Like, it, this takes long-winded 20, 30, 40, 50 years to play out for these things because still the dollar reserve, dollar currency around the central banks of the world is still 60% of the reserve assets held at central banks. And it's 20% the euro. It's like, and then 20% everything else. So it's like it's still predominantly or none anything else is anywhere close to even taking dollars. So I think pumping all this money, getting all this credit in the world is one. The U.S. is the only one with positive interest rates. Everywhere else in the world is zero, negative, as especially over in Europe and Japan. So those are your two other, your next biggest economies. Um, and, and then China, I don't even know what they're doing because uh, you can't tell what they're doing because they make China. They make a. Everything's so convoluted. Well, so but, that, but, but to my point is, yeah. like, I think they're trying to get the economy to a point to where it can self-sustain. It doesn't need constant injection of cash, but they're also prepared to keep buying cash, putting cash in the market. They're trying to get it to a point. How do you get – okay, so that's where I guess I don't – I'm, I'm too stupid to understand this then. Because it's like how do you – how is it your hopes to get the country back to a point where they don't need more money – by constantly putting in money as soon as they feel a little bit of discomfort. Or it's like, ha- to me, that's, you create that's, dependency that's, that's on f- it. That's fiscal policy, not monetary policy. It's the Fed. But you're, you're, you're confusing two different things. Like, you're what? talking about fiscal policy. Okay. That's the government. Yes. The Fed does monetary policy. Okay. What's a di- what do you believe is the difference in what I just said? 
Because you're saying that every feel a little bit of pain, yeah. they give them more money. Yes. The Fed can't do that. Yes, they can. That, yeah, they, that's who controls it. No, they don't control that. Okay. You're, uh, are I, you talking about corporations? They can they can do financial markets. Yes. That's all they can do. Right. They can't do individual people, like the vast majority, like when everybody's getting laid off or stuff like that, or child tax credits. Like, Fed can't do that. I understand. And that's what I said. Like, if you feel a little bit of people start but, feeling a little bit of but pain. But you think like you. So you're saying that there's a drastic difference between one and the other. And I understand in the actual terms there's a massive difference. What I'm saying in in the actual terms there isn't a massive difference. They would work together. Whenever the Fed needs to put more money, the fiscal policy comes in allowing it to do so. No, they did not do that in December of 19. When the repo rate December of what? December of nineteen, when the repo market there's problems like there was problems leading a financial market yeah. well up into the pandemic. Yeah. They just blamed that. It's like the government did nothing to stop that. We had a different like, all government. In, huh? We had a different government. I'm saying in twenty okay, so twenty twenty four rolls on twenty twenty three, twenty twenty four. I mean we're gonna have we we could potentially have a new government next year in twenty twenty two. Right. And then leading in twenty three, we have a whole new government. Yeah. And so that's what I'm, I'm talking with what we have right now. That they can just keep pumping in more money, buying treasuries, buying bonds. They're pretty much propping up the stock market. Is that, so, okay, are you talking about government or are you talking about the Fed? Oh, they're, to they're, me, they're, they're the same they're shit. Not, they're not. They control two different aspects I understand, of the thing. I understand on the books what they control. I'm saying what they control the money, therefore they control everything else. I mean, everything is controlled by the money, not the policies. Like The, the, policy, Fed, the policies dictate what the, happens with the money. Right, I Yes. Okay. So you're okay. So this is kind of like it's an like argument they, that you and I always have. You're more of an, I guess, idealist on like the what the government word. should be. No, 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 no. You got to use the real words. Like you're saying, people. Like people is the government. Financial markets is the Fed. Okay. As like you're saying, people start feeling a little bit of pain. As like, yeah, the economy feels pain. So you're talking about financial markets. Yes, people make up the economy. There's a, no the financial markets. That's what the Fed can manipulate. And yes. can't control without the government's ability, and so which affects people. And the government, the the um, can only do budget reconciliation one time a year. No, 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 no. So I'm not talking about direct money to uh, you and me. I'm talking about affecting the the uh, affecting the economy, because okay. the economy affects people. And they can only do it via financial markets of buying bonds to the biggest corporations in the world. Right. So they cannot. They just give them all the money. That money doesn't go to the to the bottom. No, it's obviously it shown that way. So that doesn't fix the that doesn't do the economy. Doesn't the stop them from doing it though. They can try, but yeah. they they've shown that it doesn't it doesn't do the move the needle right. as yes. far as the real economy. Yes. So you have to have a combination of fiscal and monetary policy to drive the economy. Yes. So what are you saying that that they're arguing you're arguing here that if they try to pull back, it's going to tank everything because they're propping the economy. They and I know, and that's what I'm saying. I know they're doing that. I'm agreeing okay. with you. It's like, and they're purposely doing it because they're trying to reset the debt from all of 20, 2000 to 2020. They're yeah. trying to wipe, wipe away all that debt and devalue it to a point that it doesn't matter to where you can get, you're paying 3% on the interest rate, but you can go and borrow at five. Yes. That's what they want. That's what they're doing. That's what they tried to get after 2008, mm -hmm. and they couldn't do it. And then so like, okay, we pumped all this money in and we didn't get the inflation that we needed. We couldn't get interest rates above the 2%. Because then when they started doing that, things started tanking or started, economy started really affecting that route. So yeah. it's like, okay, so now, because that means that they started buying interest rates that 
corporations were the ones that were getting hurt and they were because the people didn't have the money. So they weren't spending the money. They, they were raising prices and people pulled back. So now they said, okay, so now if we give money to the bottom, we give money to the top, can that now get us the reset that we've been trying to get for the past 12, 15 years? Mm-hmm. That's what I think they're trying to do to when they do rise interest rates, the economy doesn't fall because now you have the bottom has money and the top has money and it can go those higher interest rates. How does the mo- bottom have money? I guess that's where I'm missing the, the point, I guess, because like you're saying the bottom has money, right? Okay. All right. So yeah. they gave everybody money, gave mm-hmm. everybody cash, right? But now people are staying home, they're hoarding cash. So M2 has increased drastically, which includes saving rates as far as the economy goes. Which the Fed said doesn't matter anymore. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So the amount of money doesn't matter. So they're getting it to the people, getting them primed, ready to spend. Now those people aren't coming back to work or they're reallocating assets or doing different things. So now that hurts business when they can't get labor. But now the labor, the corporations have cash via the Fed's policies to get money. So now they have cash to withstand these labor shortages and pay more money to get people back to work. So now you've already seen it like McDonald's, Starbucks, all these people, all these corporations coming out like prices are rising. So now our wages are rising. Now people are getting paid more. Mm-hmm. They have cash and they're getting paid more. Yes. So now the comp- corporations can make more money because now they're back to work with these new prices and the people are able to afford it with the new money. So that's what I'm saying. It's like now the bottom has money, the top has money, and you had a reset. Because before, when they pumped all that money into the top, the top just kept it. They didn't raise yes. wages. They yes. didn't do yes. anything. So now when they're yeah. like, we couldn't. So now when they re- they borrowed their way and gave all the buybacks to their executives, so now when they raise interest rates, they couldn't pay that debt because the bottom didn't have the money to go up with it because the fiscal policy wasn't in conjunction with the monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Now they've got the fiscal and the monetary policy both doing it. So there's cash at the bottom, cash in the middle, cash, there's cash everywhere to where you can now reset. The, econ- the economy can grow, can inflate, and they can raise interest rates above this 1% without it come crashing down. So now it's just a matter of time for the economy to grow and reset. They're, they're, well, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, like, I'm not saying it's working exactly, but, but they are getting the inflation they've been trying to get. Right. They're wanting to get. And that's it's transitionary. And, it's like, and that's why a lot of these banks are now holding on to all of their cash and because they're expecting higher interest rates. They're doing a lot of things like they're holding cash because they know there's going to be better opportunities to invest that cash in the future is what they're betting on. How far in the future? And they didn't say. They haven't said. They didn't say. Because but if they keep dumping in more money and doing more liquidity than that cash that the banks are holding, what's it going to be worth when they decide to invest it? Yeah, again, I was reading the comments. So when they're, they're having um, the banks that are holding cash, they're holding all this money, they keep dumping more money in the economy, what's that money going to be worth when they do try to actually invest that money? Being that they're holding it in cash and the dollar... You know, they keep dumping more money, more money to pay off the Cause debt. Because their bet is they're going to have to raise above inflation to slow it down. That's so how, then that money will start to become worth something. Yeah, but basically, like, ideally, if they go from your normal inflation is a 2%, hits 3%, 4% starts getting hot, the Fed has to get ahead of the inflation to slow it down. So where if it's hitting 2 3 4%, they're going to have to go, the Fed's going to be at 5 6 7 8% to stop the inflation from continuing to rise, to push it back down. So we'll see so, another, like, 1980s where well, that's it goes up to what? That, no, well, I, that's what they can't let it do, is get to 15 18%. Because, I mean, that was the thing that happened in the 80s. Like, so, it was inflation that was just out of control. So this is the thing that always worries me, is, like, these things, like, you cannot manipulate the market. 
You understand? Because every time you try, you overcorrect in either direction because the market is the market. Sometimes it takes time, but then what it does is when it corrects, it's, it hurts, but then it'll recover quicker. But when you're trying to manipulate the recovery, you're trying to manipulate the drop, you're trying to manipulate all this, you end up making both drastically worse. You understand? Like, I, I, those are the things that worry me, to be honest. Well, then, I mean, that like, goes back because to then 1913. Because you're, you're saying they're going like... to, yeah, they're going to raise interest rates, you know, in order for the dollar to be worth something again. It's like they've never been able to. You understand? Like, the, if we look at inflation, inflation has always gone up. It's never gone down. Like, we've, uh, the dollar has, over the course of its existence, has always bought you less than before. Except you understand? For two, except for 2008. No, there's a, there's a few times in the history where the the prices had well, CPI that's when everything tanks. Yeah, it's like okay, that, but it's like yeah. that's what I was saying. But overall, like the dollar's always worth less. So I just don't see how that's gonna happen. And then the next question comes in, like wrapping this into real estate, right? We have the eviction moratoriums that I think are up na nationwide. Uh, I think at the end of June. Then we have the forbearance that are supposed to be up, I believe, in September, August, around there. You have forbearance periods that are supposed to be up. So how does all of this look when, you, so supposedly, based on the articles that we read, based on the studies that we read and everything, there's a lot of people freaking the hell out because they say once the eviction moratoriums are over, once the forbearances are over, what the hell are they going to do? They still don't have jobs. They still can't afford their rents. They still can't, they won't have a place to go. They're going to be homeless. Well, so like, how does that look like, you know, do, do you anticipate if, this is my curiosity. If those numbers are big enough, I don't believe they are. I don't believe that many people are going to be homeless. I don't believe that many people can't afford a place to live, right? I don't think it's going to be anywhere near 2008 and you didn't have that problem in 2008, so. No, no. But I'm saying with all the metrics that the Fed is using to keep stimulating, to keep printing, all the, all the numbers that the fiscal uh, <laughs> policy makers are using – to keep fiscal policies, to keep uh, one of the debates that they're saying is like the child tax credit. They, this is supposed to go through the end of the year, but they're trying to make it permanent. So all of these things, how do you feel that if eviction moratorium comes up and there are a lot of evictions, there are a lot of people hitting the streets, do you feel that fiscal and the Fed are two separate people and they don't, you know, whatever? Um, <laughs> how do you feel they're going to adjust to that? Like, do you feel they're going to come ahead of it and say, you know, just to prevent this, we're going to introduce another, you know, what was it, $50 billion or something to help renters stay in their homes? We're going to drop. I mean, they very, they very well, they very well could. And they might. I mean, I put it as as a, if I had to put a probability to it, like a, like a 70, 30 chance, a 30 chance, that 30% chance that they do extend it even further because it can't keep going on forever. And it's like one of the things like there's there are repercussions that come from this and they're aware and they've said it on both sides of the aisle. That's like we can't keep just bailing people out and paying them to stay home and not produce. Yeah, yeah Biden, like, Biden said it. He agreed with even the, the um, extra unemployment benefits to end in September. He's like, I'm perfectly fine with that ending. Like, yeah, it's like you can't just like work for yeah. free or work or not work and get paid and free. I mean, you have all these social security problems. I mean, you have all the social nets and things mm -hmm. like that, but they've done it at too big a scale now. Um, so, I mean, I put a 70, 30 chance that they could do that. And they, I don't, I don't think they will, because it's just like the banks can't keep holding the bag. You're going to have large institutional investors. Some that's going to trickle up to the biggest 
people, I mean, across the world. And it's like the debt's going to continue to rise and you're going to have a, a massive hyperinflation where the dollar, you're going to continue further do damage to the long, uh, the, the long, what am I trying to say? The Who knows? ability for the dollar to maintain its reserve currency status. Cause eventually countries around the world are going to start saying, okay, this is getting ridiculous. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Cause they're not doing the same shit. Yeah. Um, but anyways, there's a question I want to yeah. ask in here, or somebody's asked a master Jedi put in here. So okay. inflation is yeah. here and could be bad. Why is real estate a safer haven from inflation? Well, it has to come down to the ability to be able to rent out and generate cash from that. While you are going to, prices would come down if inflation did come up and they, they raise interest rates drastically, that would affect payments and theoretically bring prices down because be, the mortgages go up. So that is the levers of it. you got the price and you got the payment. So interest rates go down, prices go up usually because the payment stays low. But now if interest rates start to rise, people can't afford it. And if enough people can't afford it, then you turn into more balanced market and prices either stable off or come down or wherever they may be. But why it's good for inflation is because you can generate rent from it. That's why you always need to make sure you maintain cash flow from your investments to maintain that investment as far as repairs and taxes, insurance, and all the things go. So it is a place that your cash is put, it's fixed, it's interest rates where it's at, and you are constantly always going to be, should be generating cash flow from that and equity pay down. That's why people flock to hard assets when there is massive inflation. So why the price of the houses, which everyone tends to focus on, could come down, but it's the fact that it's a safe haven for your cash that you invested in that home however long ago when you bought it, and you're generating a return off of that and getting the equity pay down from your tenants paying your mortgage, essentially, mortgage insurance taxes for you. Yeah, and I mean, inflation always works, uh, real estate always works against inflation because as they print more money, it always goes to assets first, right? Like it always props up more assets. So that's why we're seeing real estate go up as ridiculously as it has been. So it props it up. Then like John is saying, once interest rates come up and everything, that's when you start seeing those prices start dropping. Um, but that's why we, what we talk about is like a lot of people getting into short-term rentals, Airbnbs and all of these things, right? It's fine to get into it, but you got to keep in mind that if this property, if things were to drop and then all of a sudden short-term rentals and Airbnbs are just not. That's something that is dangerous because when they do rise interest rates, it makes a lot of things harder to do. Credit cards go up. Borrowing yeah. money goes up. The Traveling goes down. Travel. The travel yeah. goes down. Industry goes down. Like. So the people that are dependent on people traveling exactly, and you don't have long-term tenants in that house, now you could have a potential problem. Right. So, so that's, then, that's like, why you got to make sure that those properties, regardless of what happens, they will still make sense as it sits, let's say, as a traditional rental. It will still make sense if you needed to uh, put it back on the market. So this means not overpaying for a property like a lot of people are doing. Like If you're overpaying for a home that's your house and you plan on being in that house for the next decade or so, or so then okay, whatever, overpay, it's fine, it's your home eventually it's going to make sense, right? But if you're buying as an investment, you should never overpay. You should always at least have the option that if you needed to liquidate, you can sell. You know, you can sell that house and cover the more, cover the loan on, the, on that property. So we've seen this and we continue to see this time and time again where people are buying a house pretty much at retail when it still needs 20, 30 grand worth of work in it. Right. So then when you add that extra 20 grand, you add that you paid retail and this happens. Now you're underwater severely on this property. 
And if you bought it for short-term rental pro- uh, possibilities, Airbnb or whatever, now you're not even making the cash flow to take care of the mortgage. Yeah. So that's where it real estate could be very beneficial or it could be pretty much the death of you in that situation. Um, but that's kind of how you look at it as far as inflation and everything like that goes. So what other articles do you have on this? Well, I had a whole bunch of them yeah. to read. Um, but uh, so coming along with this and kind of leading up to these issues, so Stanley Drunkenmiller is a huge investor that runs a massive multi-billion dollar hedge fund. Um, came out several weeks ago. This was actually back in uh, towards the middle of May, about a month ago. And he started calling this. So like the way this is kind of played out is that the Federal Reserve policies aimed at keeping markets and the economy afloat during the pandemic could end up threatening the long-term health of the U.S. dollar investing magnet. Uh, Stanley Drunkenmiller told CNBC, I can't find any period in history where monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances, not one, Drunkenmiller said. Though he does not take issues with the Fed initial action to combat the pandemic-related threats, Drunkenmiller said the critical, the central bank has kept its foot on the accelerator too long. Over the long haul, he said, the policies... And the heavy debts and deficits they support will threaten the dollar standing at the world's reserve currency. If we're going to monetize our debt and we're going to enable more and more of this spending, that's why I'm worried now for the first time that within 15 years we lose reserve currency status and, of course, all the unbelievable benefits that accrue with it. To be sure, others have warned in the past that Fed excess could threaten the dollar, but the greenback has retired, retained its position in the world. That's kind of one thing he was talking about, where like mm-hmm. if you keep this money on, like, and you keep pumping debt, you keep bailing people out, you keep doing this, of, and yes, the rest of the world is doing it currently, but if they stop and we keep going, that's when people are going to lose faith. And you could see something else come out and rise. So that was as of beginning of May. Um, then... Oh, I just... Next, you have Paul Tudor Jones go all in on inflation trades if the Fed ignores higher prices. So this was as of Monday. He puts us in the Fed had a two-day meeting. Uh, I think that was during Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones told CNBC on Monday he's paying close attention to this week's Federal Reserve policy meeting in light of recent economic data showing higher consumer prices. If they trade these numbers, which were material events, they they were very material. If they treat them with nonchalant, I think it's just a green light to bet heavy on every inflation trade, Jones said. If they say, yes, we're on a path, things are good, then I would just go all in on the inflation trades. We'll probably buy commodities, buy crypto. I'd probably buy commodities, buy crypto, buy gold, all of those things that are good for and um, for higher inflation environments. Mm-hmm. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the United States, comes out and says, J.P. Morgan Chase has been effectively stockpiling cash rather than using it to buy treasuries or other investments because of the possibilities of higher inflation will force the Federal Reserve to boost interest rates. Diamond said Monday during a conference, the biggest U.S. bank by assets has positioned itself to benefit from rising interest rates, which will let it buy higher yielding assets. We have a lot of cash and capabilities, and we're going to be very patient because I think you have a very good chance inflation will be more than transitionary, Diamond said. So you got the CEO of the largest bank in the world, or in the the United States, probably the world, coming out and saying like, "Mm, 
I'm calling BS on what the Fed's doing about this being quote unquote transitionary. I think it's here to stay. I'm going to keep this cash so we can buy our, because why do I want to buy a 10-year treasury for 10 years yielding one and a half? I think they're going to have to raise these things and get them into the two, three, four percent ranges. So let um, me ask you though, JP Morgan, all these people, they're not little institutions, right? Uh, they're by far the people that, you know, manipulate, I uh, mean, influence policies and the Federal Reserve and they kind of like interchange people. Yeah. Um, is this kind of like JP Morgan and them telling you what the Fed is going to do, not what the Fed should or could do? More of like, look, we pretty much run this shit because we control the, you know, we had the too big to fail. They became impossible to fail because yeah. they can't go out of business because they'll tank the whole economy. Uh, they'll tank pr pretty much the world. So they're saying, hey, we are stockpiling cash, Fed. So this means that you're going to need to raise interest rates. So our cash is actually worth something later, yeah. Fed. So I mean, they, like, they can't directly do it, but they're just saying like, well, if Fed's going to do that, then we're going to do this and we're going to force the Fed to act how we want them to act. Exactly. And, and it, it very well could be because one of the things too, like if the banks aren't buying those treasuries and the, the Fed can't be the only buyer buying all of the U.S. debt, well, what do you do? Uh, you look have, at Japan. You have to raise interest rates because, I mean, it still does work on a quote unquote supply and demand a yes. little bit. To yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. like if nobody's there buying it, they have to raise interest rates on the federal debt to get people to entice to buy it. So I think that was doing. So he continues saying, if you look at our balance sheet, we have a, we have five hundred billion in cash, a billion with a B. We've actually been effectively stockpiling more and more cash, waiting for opportunities to invest at higher rates. Diamond said, I do expect to see higher rates and more inflation, and we're prepared for that. The Fed officials have called the current spike in inflation transitionary, meaning temporary and short-lived. But there are increasing voices, including Deutsche Bank economists and hedge fund billionaires, who warn of consequences should the Fed ignore inflation. In a wide-range discussion, D Diamond stuck, struck on several familiar themes. He warned that the banks were unable were under threat from fintech and big tech players, including PayPal, which I didn't know this, which has a larger market capitalization than nearly all U.S. banks. So a fintech company that just processes payments has a larger market capitalization than a bank that literally does everything, yeah. which is kind of crazy to where it's like their stock public cash is like, we got to compete with these people uh, and being able to change and change our business model to adapt to them. Oh, the banks also make money when they have the client tell working with the bank. The, the other companies... They work with anybody. You don't need to be a part of their bank. But yeah, but I'm saying like the JP Morgan, I mean, like they do, they, they buy mortgages, they do business, they do mergers and acquisitions. They do, I mean, they're a massive, massive bank with yeah. multiple multitudes of business models and profit centers and generations and credit cards and all kinds of things where it's like PayPal's like, yeah, they have a credit card. They offer some financing. They they just process payments from A to B. Uh, I mean, around the world. So it's like they need to be able to adapt to that. So now comes the Fed Reserve on Wednesday and Wednesday, yeah, Wednesday. And so the Fed Reserves on Wednesday considerably, Federal Reserve on Wednesday considerably raised its expectations for inflation this year and brought forward the time frame on when it will raise interest rates. As expected, the policymaker Federal Open Market Committee unanimously left its benchmark short-term borrowing rate anchored near zero. But officials indicated that 
rate hikes could come as early as 2023 after saying in March that they saw no increases until at least 2024. So that is why everyone's kind of freaking out because this meeting is just three months apart going from there's nothing until at least 2024. Now they're like, ooh, we're going to move that up a year. It's just in a short period of time. It's like we're cutting a whole entire year off that projection where it's like, wow, that was a lot more than we expected to see happen. That's why a lot of things are kind of uh, getting shaky. A lot of people are coming out oh, with this and that, information. That's also the point of why we tell people, like, why you got to be smart and financially savvy. Because just because the Fed came out and said previously, right, we're not raising interest rates to this time. We're not, we have no plans of uh, decreasing the monthly expenses. We have all of these things, right? It doesn't mean that they cannot change on a dime. So if you're one of these people that are betting on that and saying, hey, like a, a friend of ours at, at the mastermind, putting it all on Bitcoin, let's yeah. double or nothing, right? Put it all on black. That's like, okay, well, things can change on a dime. Are you prepared to handle that change when it comes? Because it will come. Things do change that drastically. Policies do change that fast sometimes, especially if we have a change in, like you're saying, you know, we'll have a change probably in the Senate and stuff like that. Then all of a sudden is like maybe the 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 stimulus, the all these policies are putting out to, you know, to stimulate the economy. Now the government changes, the Senate changes, and then things start things stop. Yeah. More help doesn't come out. So now all of a sudden what you thought was the new way of life changed on a dime. So that's why where you need to be fiscally sound and savvy with your investments, with your reserves, with your savings, yeah. and just say, well, this is because I feel that this is going to go this way. But if it doesn't, I also have this, right? So, yeah. so, so to go along with that, like, though the Fed raised its headline inflation expectation to 3.4%, a full percentage point higher than the March projection, there's another thing causing problems like, they brought forward an entire year, and then they raised their projection in three months, an entire percentage point. That's a, those are big jumps. Right. The post-meeting statement stood by its position that inflation pressures are transitionary. The, raise, the raised expectations come amid the biggest rise in consumer prices in about 13 years. This is not what the market expected, says James Conan, Deputy Chief Economist at Albert Green Standard Investments. The Fed is now signaling that rates will need to be rise sooner and faster, with their forecast suggesting two hikes in 2023. This changes in stance jars a little with the Fed's recent claims that the recent spike in inflation is temporary. Our expectation is these high inflation readings now will abate, Powell said at his post-meeting news conference. However, the central bank gave no indication as when it will begin cutting back on its aggressive bond buying program, though the Fed chairman Jerome Powell acknowledged the officials discussed the issue at the meeting. You can think of it as the meeting that we had as the talk about talking about meeting, Powell said in a phrase that re reconciled the statement he made a year ago that the Fed wasn't thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. So that's one thing that's leading up to this whole ordeal. You got Drunken Mill a month ago saying they can't keep the foot on the gas. And then you got JP Morgan coming out saying we're hoarding cash. You got people coming out saying if they don't come back and say like, or Paul Tudor Jones saying if they don't raise interest rates, I'm betting all on inflation. If they don't change right. their stance, we're going that way. So now you got some things of like, how is the market taking that? How has it reacted? Uh, I don't know if you saw this article of what, uh, commodities from copper to corn, everything is done. Of uh, what prices have changed? Go, prices of commodities were falling sharply on Thursday, cutting into months of gains and weighing on equity markets as 
One, China, uh, as China takes steps to cool off rising prices of the U.S. dollar strengthens. So one thing I was reading is like, okay, what causes the U.S. dollar to strengthen? And higher interest rates does increase or does raise the dollar value, makes it a stronger value having higher interest rates because now people want those dollars because they produce more money. They cause inflation because I didn't really know the trend. The, I thought it was the opposite where it's like if you're rising interest rates, wouldn't that cause things to go down? But it's actually the opposite to where like there's higher interest rates show that there's a demand for dollars and people want that money. So they start um, bidding up the dollar, which pushes some prices down. Decline in commodities was widespread with future prices from palladium and petroleum, gold and silver, corn, soybeans, oil, and lumber. Basically, every single commodity saw um, prices decrease except for uh, meat. A Chinese government agency announced a plan on Wednesday to release reserves of key metals, including copper and aluminum, according to Rudders. Federal Reserve increased projections for inflation and rate hikes from Wednesday also could be contributing to the decline by putting upward pressure on the dollar and signaling that the central bank is closely following the rising prices. Dollar index, which measures the greenback against a basket of currencies, has risen about 1.6% since the federal update projections were released just Wednesday afternoon. Commodities often move inversely to the greenback since they are mostly priced in U.S. dollars. So some of the prices were pretty drastic. So where you have gold, copper, silver, platinum, they all drop from 6 to 8%. Uh, lumber down almost 10%. Corn dropped over 20%. Soybeans down 15%. And you have um, cattle and live cattle actually increased, but hog and for pork had decreased almost 10%. So you see a lot of these pressures that go to show that, hey, maybe this is a little more transitionary because you now have all these prices of the futures starting to fall for the next two, three months when those contracts are executed. So it does kind of go with the Fed saying, hey, these rising interest rates, commodities are falling. Then so maybe this is a little more of a transitionary and they are staying on top of what currently is happening in the economy. So I was reading a question that somebody asked and kind of tied to what you're just talking about. Is cash king right now, right? And it's a tough, I believe it's a tough question to answer because it kind of depends on like what school of thought are you more with, right? Um, we've heard major uh, economists, investors talk about how they're hoarding cash. Other ones are saying this is huge inflation, right? You should not be in cash. Where do you stand on that? What do you feel that, you know, so I guess to set it up a little bit better for you, the way I look at it is the same thing that I said before. You need to be financially savvy. What does this mean? Is that you should have cash, but yet you should have assets and you should have things that go in against cash in case cash does decline. That's how I look at it. To me, it's like, is like, cash uh, king? I... I honestly don't care if it is or it isn't i'm making i'm hedging my bets everywhere you understand like I, that's why i don't gamble because to me gambling you know i i, I don't know i just throwing money away but, but when it comes time to investing i look at it that way where it's like i'm gonna put some chips here i'm gonna put some chips here i'm gonna put some chips are am i more heavily leveraged in one direction than another yes it's gonna depend on the time and the policies Right now, I am less leveraged on cash because I believe inflation is still needs to go up drastically more before we start seeing any kind of decline. 
right? That means the dollar is going to get your cash on hand is going to get devalued over the coming months, maybe years, right? So it's like, that's my belief. That's what I see with everything. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. So I'll have, but I'm still have cash because this can turn on a dime any moment. Now that cash, it is worth fucking something. You know what I mean? So how do you see, do you think cash is still king? I mean, it, it cash is king when asset prices fall, things go through the floor, and you're the only one with money. But it's one of those things, too, that it's like, to your point exactly, I agree. It's like you can't just be sitting there, I'm so fearful that I got to have all cash because everything's going to tank. Because, like, yeah, people, at like, going 2010, 12, and they're like, oh, I, I, this is going to keep going down. The, the euro debt crisis is going to tank the world, and I'm going to sit all in cash. Or we know do one gentleman a while ago. He's like, oh, the stock market at the Dow at 17,000. Oh, it's going to crash. It can't sustain this. So uh, I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to hold cash for it to drop. Like, well, it's at 33, 34,000. It's double that now. And it hasn't crashed. That cash or, is worth a lot less right now. Yeah. And it's worth a lot less if you were just sitting on the sidelines waiting. So it's never, you got to have a diversified approach to it to where it's like, that's why I do like real estate. I do like the commodities, but it's also having stocks and bonds in the, uh, the diversification of that matters to where it's like, I don't think it's ever going to hurt you to have liquidity because there are those opportunities that you do need it. And it is great yeah. to have when you do have it where it's like, you got to figure out what your, your level of understanding of what the economy is and where things are at mm -hmm. and not just what the headlines tell you it is. And you got to find what level you're wanting as your safety net, as what you feel comfortable for your base knowledge to take advantage of what could happen in the future and allows you to sleep at night. Or like, oh my God, I, I can't stand these assets. They're going to fall. I'm freaking out. I'm too over leveraged. Sell some off and have cash. You got to get to whatever's going to make you comfortable. But if you sit there and read the headlines and try to like freak out all the time, I mean, that's just no good I think, for anybody. And you and I have spoken about this before, is that anybody that goes all in in any direction is a fool, right? Pity a fool. Because you look at somebody like that and you just, the, if you look at history, and this is something that you and I always are studying, we're reading books on the economy, we're reading books on, on economic history, fiscal history, policies, everything, because we like understanding how has, you know, when things have happened, how has the government reacted? How has the people reacted? How have the banks reacted? So when you look at all this, things change so quickly. You know, like that guy that we hear, uh, the podcast that he talks about, he's like 96% on Bitcoin. Yeah. That is the by far the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? The same if somebody says, I'm 100% in on real estate. That is still very stupid, you know, uh, because it's like you need to be diversified. You need to have a good separation of things. It doesn't mean that you can't be heavily invested in real estate or heavily invested in Bitcoin, but what's your hedge look like? And one thing that uh, Capital Assets Pricing Model said, um, what, what can we call them? C-A-P-M? Cap. Cap them? Cap. Cap them. Oh, <laughs> Cap them. Uh, all right. But he says, think of cash as liquidity, which is required to meet short-term debts and liabilities. To this extent, one should have cash. So, I agree with this insight in the sense that, like, I think, if anything, if you say how much cash, maybe have a good six months, maybe a year worth of expenses in cash, right? Your, li your 
everyday day-to-day liabilities, your month-to-month liabilities, your rents, mortgages, car payments, everything. You have that in cash, right? So then it's like anything happens, you know you're going to be okay for at least that period of time, right? And then once you have that, because that's it, I, I agree with that. I think cash is exactly for that purpose, is for liabilities and debts, right? So as long as you have enough cash to handle that liability and debt, then you could diversify into other asset asset models and, and, you know, real estate and Bitcoin and gold and whatever the hell you want. Right. So I don't know. That's kind of how I look at it. As far as this uh, Master Jedi's question is cash king right now. It's just that it's like I think financial education is king right now. Right now, what is going to lead you to prosperity over the coming years, over all this uncertainty is are you knowledgeable enough to understand how to protect yourself no matter what comes your way. And that is the purpose of this show. That is the purpose of Coffee with the Johns, that we are constantly analyzing the trends, analyzing what all this is. So when some episodes, yeah, we get more political, is because, like we said, policy drives the economy. Policies drive what the Federal Reserve does. Policy drives what the markets print, what the markets do, how they react to things. So, yes, and policies are driven by politics. I'm sorry you don't like it, but it is what it is, right? Yeah. So you just got to stay educated. You have uh, another to keep going in that realm, or we should can we shift oh, gears a little? Man, bit? I'm just looking. I think that's the last bit of the inflation, monetary, fiscal policy. What's going on in the economy? So uh, aspect of it. So we, I think we can. Uh, so I wanted to shift gears and uh, cover a few interesting topics that we hit on. So we started a mastermind group. Um, uh, a few months back with some select investors and the local investors that are doing very well in their unique areas, right? So we have people from buy and hold. We have people from fix and flips. We have uh, people from land, a wholesaler, a real estate agent. So we brought in, you know, we're, we're trying to create a diverse mastermind group and the conversations that get brought up are so interesting. You know, they're very enjoyable. I had a hell of a time. And what was it, like three hours? And we had to pretty much cut it short because it was yeah, just going on. I didn't get to talk. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, we didn't even get to you, right? Yeah, we barely got to even Tim. But those are, you know, it's an excellent um, setup. And this whole setup comes from a concept that I actually learned recently. But it was the same premise that we we read the book. We're reading the book, Tribe of Millionaires. I highly recommend the book to everybody. Um, excellent book to read. It was a really good book. Yeah, it? because it's it's what I call like factional, right? It's it's a fiction book based on real life like business models and how to look at all these things. Like it, yeah. it's an amazing book. I, I really it's a quick read, very small book, but a, amazing, powerful book to read. But one of the things they talk about is the multiplier effect. And what the multiplier effect is, is pretty much they give the example, right? Where if you have, you're the only person in the world that has a cell phone. How much is that cell phone worth? Like, not a damn thing. You're the only person in the world that has a cell phone. Now, if somebody else has a cell phone, now how much is that cell phone worth? Well, it's worth a little bit more because now you can communicate with somebody else. The more people that have cell phones, the more that cell phone is worth because the more you can connect with people, the more uh, reach you have, all of that. And they relate that to the same concept of having a group of people to discuss and brainstorm ideas. They're like, you by yourself 
can only solve so many problems or can only come up with so many ideas because kind of like what I believe it was Einstein that said it, you know, the same mind that caused the problem can't be the same mind that solves the problem, right? So when you align yourself with more and more people, all of a sudden your reach and the effect of that group becomes exponentially bigger. You understand? The amount that you can reach, the amount of knowledge that you can gain, the amount of things that you can solve get exponentially bigger. And the ideas that get discussed in this group are things that, like none, none of us in that group are stupid by any means, right? We've all had success in real estate. We all have success and we're all growing really quickly in our spaces. That's like, these aren't dumb people yet. The ideas that get discussed based on the problems that we have is like, crap, I, I didn't even think about it. You understand? I didn't even think in that direction of that idea. And it's like, holy shit, how is that going to catapult my business right now? So very powerful concept. That being said, we, one of the topics that came up was uh, 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 one of the people in the, one of the members in the mastermind, they brought up, they have a rental portfolio, they have all that. And they're kind of looking at what their next step in life is right? What does that next thing look like? They want to be very passive. They want to do all this. And it brought up a very interesting question for me because it's something that I've always been thinking about. You reach financial freedom, right? What is financial freedom? By the definition is that, you know, pretty much that you're at a point where you no longer have to work and your cash flow, your investments, your whatever. Your assets outweigh your liabilities. And it takes care of any any liabilities that you have, you know, rich dad, poor dad, one-on-one. What does that look like, though, moving forward? You hit financial freedom. What does the next decade or two or three or four, whenever you hit financial freedom, what does that look like? Because that, like one thing that I brought up to them was that, yeah, you have right now, you've hit financial freedom. But there's going to be a point that those properties that you have, that cash flow, that income is going to kind of hit a point of like diminishing returns, right? A house gets much older, starts deteriorating. It starts getting to a point where it's like, man, it's not really producing anymore. So now you're kind of like pulled off the bench again, having to reassess your investments and modify your investments and maybe sell off some and have to jump into something else to keep that level of financial freedom. So that was one of the curiosities that I wanted to kind of talk to you about is like, what do you look at that? Like you hit financial freedom. How do you make sure that that financial freedom stays over the coming decades? You understand? Like what, what do you feel is the adequate thing? Because they can't go completely passive, right? Because then at some point they're going to have to do something with that real estate. And if they've been out of the market for years, it's going to be, I think, much harder to do. So like, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I guess it, it's, it's all it depends on the person too, to where it's like real estate is not a passive. I mean, it can be fairly passive, but it's not like they, it, like it's as passive as just putting it all in the market, stock market diversified or handing over to a financial planner. It's like, Hey, just manage this. I just want to draw from it. Kind of like a retirement account is, um, to where, I don't know. It, it just it, it depends Did on each person. You? Well, no, it's just like like what it's like. I'm trying to think of like a general way to look at it. It's like it's whatever's comfortable to that person, right? And you made the comment of like, I, I don't know what all your exact question is to a little bit of like, what does financial look like for me, or what does it look like for other people? Well, you so okay. Let's get let's give let's put let's put them their situation right. 
they have enough cash flow right now that they could essentially both retire and live the life that they want. Yeah. And they're good to go. Yeah. For how long? Eventually, indefinitely. Why? You don't think that that real estate is ever going to need to be turned over, do something else with? Really? Really? I mean, you take care of it. I mean, you, you made that comment. Like, if they're out of the market for a while and they come back and they don't know what to do, it's like, the skills that got them here, those are lifelong skills. They don't just go away. Yeah, the market changes, but it's also, you still already own the house. You still are generating cash flow. And knowing those two is like, they're not going to run out to where like, oh my God, I can't repair my houses. I need to sell them all. Like, I don't think it's ever going to get to that point either. So I, to where I, I think it's, it goes back to where yeah. several people, like, you got to have a better place to put the cash. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, oh, I could sell this thing, but I don't even understand this market anymore. I can't find deals anymore. I'm just going to repair what I got and keep it. Yeah. And just repair it and just keep the train going. So like, and then you could equity pay down to really talk about like, do I pay some assets off? Do I leverage up? It all depends on where you want to be to where it's like, they could stop and they could start doing the waterfall effect where it's like, uh, we got an extra 20 grand a year, 30 grand a year. I'm going to dump that into one property, pay it off, increase the cash flow, pay the next one off, increase the cash flow, and move down the chain to where they could simplify their lives instead of having, I don't know how many doors they got, just call it 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 50 doors where it's like, I'm just going to pay off 25 of them, sell the other 25 off, pay the 20 off. My life just got simpler. Now, on 50 tenants, I got 25 tenants. However, they want to move it down to. Okay. So it's like, and then they could diversify it to where it's like, you know what? Real estate is still too active. I don't want this many people. I'm going to sell off the 50 down to 25, get the first 25 paid off, the extra cash. I'm going to start moving into a diversified or uh, go to a financial planner and say, I need you to put this into a market and diversify it across asset models or asset different types of asset, but in the financial markets, because that is a passive aspect where it's like yes. that can just generate cash. And you don't have to maintain it because somebody else is doing it. I mean, over time, we can get into different aspects of that. But I think you could do that to where it's like there's all kinds of different things you could do because they have the, that's part of the name, freedom. They have the freedom to choose what they want to do with it. I don't think if they took 10 years off, they come back, then all of a sudden they're going to lose it all. Yeah. And it's like, it's like they still have the skills. They still know how to real, manage real estate, and they still already own all those 50 doors. So, okay. So I, I disagree with you in a lot of – of those points, yes, I you do. Of course, I agree with the overall premise. What you said, like, and, and to summarize a lot of that is, you have to stay involved with your investment, even though you want that financial life, that financial freedom life, that uh, passive life. You still got to be involved, right? You still have to pay attention. What is the market doing? What is all this? One thing I disagree is that you say you already have the skills. You can come back later. I disagree, right? Because the market changes and evolves so quickly that we've, we are already seeing investors that have been doing this for 30 plus years. The market has changed so much that they don't know how to invest anymore. They're, they're, their traditional models, they can't find investment properties. They can't find deals. They don't know what the hell to invest in because what they used to do doesn't make sense anymore to do. They need to adapt to the new market. Because they're generating active income by flipping houses and doing owner no, finance. No, no, they're doing buy and like holds. That. They're doing buy and holds. Because they're using the their old models. So exactly. Because they, they want... These tw- they want to get all their money back out. Yes. So that's the same, but that's not their But they were, they were out of the market for so long that they come back into the market and they think that they can implement because that same strategy. Too, because they left too early. They didn't have the cash. Toward these people, like, they did at they the could, time. They could, sell, they could sell all their... Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you're talking about finding deals. I was like, I'm talking about sustaining your financial freedom, right? Like when you su- Trying to sustain your financial freedom, I believe, like I said, I believe there's a point where properties... 
will have more of a diminishing return as far as you saying like, okay, I should leverage these properties. I should do something. It's like, well, is it worth doing that or is it more worth getting rid of that and your, moving But you're talking money. about maximizing your return. You're not talking about maximize, or maintaining your lifestyle. Well, I don't know what your expenses are going to look like at that point. You know what I mean? Like I'm saying like maintaining. You're looking at getting a return on your cash. That's not what they're going after. No, I'm talking about maintaining that quality of life that you have right now. Like, do you, so you feel like with whatever properties they have right now, with the same properties, they will always be able to maintain their quality of life. Yeah, for sure. That's mm-hmm. what real estate does. That's the whole point of real estate is like it, it grows over time and the equity gets paid down. And yeah. then you can always, you can manipulate your equity positions and things like that to where like at scale and a knowledge base that you didn't inherit it, you built it, you know how it works. Like those skills don't go away. Like, yes, you might not be able to find the same type of deals anymore, but if you built your life early, like you're talking about those people that left and tried to come back. It's like, well, why? So they didn't have enough cash to maintain the lifestyle from the beginning. They didn't have things built right from the first point. They had too many notes. So all of a sudden all their notes got all paid off and they had all this cash. And it's like, well, shit, now I have this. Why he's like, you went all in on notes. And it's like. So what is the right setup then? Or. Like you're saying they didn't have the right setup, so they had to come back. Yeah. What what does the right setup look like then? I was like, I don't think it's having all notes because then you're going to have a bunch of cat. It's having something that can have a defined endpoint that leaves you holding a bunch of cash and you left for a long time and you tried to go back the same thing. I think that's a bad idea mm-hmm. where you owning property, you're always going to own that property until you sell the thing off to where like when you come back, like you're the owner of it. People always need a place to live. So no matter what the market is doing, unless like a regulation is come in and do this. So that's something you do need to pay attention to. Cause if you go hard left, like New York, Wisconsin, all that, or not Wisconsin, uh, New York and Washington and the East, East and West coast are doing. Yeah. It's like, now that could be a huge problem towards your portfolio. So you can't put your head in the sand for stuff like that. Right. Right. So I think that's where like people like that tried to come back is they don't understand how this market works. It's like, well, why are you coming back trying to do the same things that you were trying to do 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Like are the properties you own now? Did you over leverage and you took the cash, you mismanaged your portfolios. Like if you own 50 doors, there's no reason that you can't, Almost, you shouldn't need to buy another house. You could essentially liquidate those and go buy retail if you wanted to and still make them cash flow. Right. Because you right. could pay 50% of it off. You can still get cash flow. It's like the same thing with them. Like they came back as like, mm, I'm going to sell off these older properties and I'm going to go buy a bunch of brand new houses and pay for them all in cash. They're still going to be just fine. They might not be generating the excess amount of cash flow, but that's also why you can't do your financial freedom. Is like, I need 10 grand and I generated 10 grand. So that's it. I'm financially free. It's like, no, you still got to have a buffer. You still got to have for the contingencies of that because yes, the cash flow might go down, but you need to make sure that you're not doing the American thing of just like living to all of your income and beyond mm-hmm. where it's like, you need to live below your means where like cash is still pooling or so you still are getting access to assets to where you have a pool of cash afterwards. Cause they went. So, so this is good because the reason I push back is for you to clarify those points, right? So one of my points with all of this is that a lot of people have the misconception, and I'm not saying by any means the the people that we're talking about have this concept because they're not like that at all, but they have this this conception of real estate being something like, oh, I invest in it, it becomes passive, and I forget it. I don't even have to think about it. I get a property manager, we're good to go. No, 
Like all the points that you made is why you need to stay involved with it. Yes, you don't need to do the day-to-day grind, all these things that you used to do. Um, you don't need to answer the phone for, you know, a clogged toilet or shit like that. There's uh, so many things that you can do for that. But that doesn't mean that you don't pay attention to your market, that you don't pay attention to your investments, that you don't pay attention to how are your properties actually performing overall. You need to be, how many people have we spoken to that they hadn't increased their rent in years that you're looking at? It, it's like, how the hell are you still surviving with the inflation that we're having and you're not increasing your rents? You understand? Because they're self-managing. They had their properties. And now all of a sudden it's been deteriorating. But they haven't been raising the rents. They haven't been keeping up with it. Now they got to let go of these properties because they did it way too passive. Yeah. You know, so it's like, well, the we point that is all that, the time. Exactly. So the point is that even passive investing is not 100% passive. You still need to be involved. Uh, one point that I definitely disagreed with is you go to a financial planner. I think that's the worst thing you do. You should never go to a financial planner. Most of those people are more broke than you are. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you're going to be investing in well, the market gotta, or anything find, like that, you got to find the you gotta right be educators that can But you got to be educated. That. You do. It's the same thing you do with yeah. CPA. You got to have a 30,000 foot view. Like, you exactly. can't go to a financial planner and just be like, just invest it. No, you but can't what go I'm that saying broad. is like, you saying go to a financial planner, you need to specify so the people listening understand that's like, you don't just go to a financial planner. You don't just go to a CPA, a real estate attorney. You need to understand this first. Yeah. You need to understand tax law. You need to understand real estate, real estate tax law. You need to understand, you know, if you're going to go to a financial planner, what do you want to be invested in? Do you want them to put you in a mutual fund or do you want to be in index funds? Do you want to be in growth caps? Do you want to be in foreign stocks? If you none of those things make sense to you, the financial planner could sell you complete dog shit and you won't know. And then all of a sudden what you thought was going to be a financial future for you all of a sudden went tanked as soon as something happened. So that is the point of this, is that what does financial freedom look like after you've reached financial freedom? It looks like something that you got to keep maintaining. You got to keep an eye on. You got to keep educating yourself. You, yes, you don't have to do the, day gr- the daily grind on it, but you have to know what is the market doing. I think doing. it's anybody that achieves it themselves is going to naturally have that mindset anyways. That's like, I don't think, I, I mean, I think, I'm going to say there's nobody out you there. You would sure hope. somebody. Yeah. But as somebody, like, if you grinded your way to financial freedom, acquiring assets, working, educating, like, you're not going to be somebody that's just going to be like, I was going 100 miles an hour and then just zeroed out, retired on the beach, and disappeared. And it's one of the things that might actually work just fine for your lifestyle, though, where it's like, Who knows? It, yeah. it, hey, it it lasts you 40, 50, 60 years, but you're not going to, I think you're not going to have anything for the kids after that. Because what is that thing like it, when wealth is created, it's squandered by the third generation? Yeah. Usually. So, so are, yeah. No, no, no. I, I agree. I mean, it, that generational thing, and this is, you know, we're not talking about generations because that goes into parenting and how you parent your kids of whether that money's going to last or not. Uh, but that being said, like, I think that was, that was really the point that I was trying to get to yeah. is get to a point where, like, guys, you know, you might reach financial freedom sooner rather than later because you your living expenses were really low, right? Your living expenses were so low that you hit that financial freedom, like, so quickly. You had a few properties, you hit it well, boom, your cash flowing, takes care of your expenses, and then some, you're free. Okay, but you're not free, right? Like, you're free as long as you keep an eye on I mean, it. Tony Robbins talked about that in his book, I think, uh, about that book on money. I think mm-hmm. it was just called Money, right? Money, master of the game, master of the game, and yep. but uh, he gave levels 
of financial freedom to where it's like he didn't call like financial freedom like there's a step before like financial independence Mm. that's where it's like hey you were independent from you didn't need to work but you still weren't free yeah because like freedom i think it was when you generated so much in excess that it's like it built for that contingency of things going wrong to where it's like the independent aspect is where your liabilities meet your um, assets and the cash flow coming off of it like, but you're not making any extra money to grow beyond that. Yeah. So I think like the financial freedom is when it's like, no, you have so much extra that you're like, where these people were like, we don't know what to do now. So obviously they reached the financial independence where they crossed over that threshold a while ago. So now they have um, the position that they're in now. Where it's like, well, what, what's next? What do we want to do? How right. does that work? And so. then, um, and then another topic that we hit that I found very interesting is the thought of foreclosures. Is there, we talked about, you know, our foreclosure is going to be coming back. And we talk about, like, we don't see why they would, but they made such an excellent point. And this is somebody that is a part of our group that she has been in real estate for quite a while. And she worked in this market. She worked in, you know, the foreclosure market and all of that. So she understands it very well. And they had some excellent points, which, uh, I'm actually only going to be sharing to our text community. So if you want to hear, what she said about foreclosures, make sure to text foreclosure to 210 I'm like, shit, And I'll be putting out that video this weekend, uh, just solely to that group. It's going to be uh, purely on that text community. And I, I mean, it reshaped the way I looked at foreclosure for sure. You know, and as far as what we're going to do as far as foreclosure marketing. So I think it's an excellent tip. Um, that being said, they, they somebody did ask if we would record uh, the mastermind. And no, we will not record the mastermind. Uh, the reason the mastermind works so well is because people have the comfort of knowing that what is said stays there stays in the group, their names aren't disclosed, their information aren't, because we disclose a lot of personal stuff. We disclose actual financials, we disclose strategies, we disclose a lot of things that um, a a lot of people in the group would not want to share or be shared in public. So in respect to that, I hope you guys understand and, um, and understand the value of that level of privacy. With that being said, I will continue to share the the tips and the nuggets that we get out of there but no we will not be recording that sorry guys uh you're just gonna have to be able to join a group like you're that. gonna have to <laughs> keep tuning in to coffee with the john pretty much so you can hear what we talk about yeah you, you'll still get the value but one thing that i wanted to cover that i just saw here is unless you had another topic that you really want to get into um we could end with real estate <laughs> well we kind of been talking about it yeah, but well i mean it's, yeah I was interested in what you put on here about um, the draft antitrust bill that could reshape Apple or Amazon. What is that about? That one? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's been no, and there was another article I put in here to talk about, but it really didn't have a lot of substance to it. Now, actually, it's coming not just from the Democrats. It's coming from Republicans and Democrats where there were seven antitrust bills coming out of a committee in the House, both, all seven co-sponsored between a Democrat and a Republican. So a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are like, okay, we need to rein in the power of big tech. So it's come, it's been in the news. It's been in the topics 
for years. We've talked about it for a while since we started this show. So a group of House Democrats is circulating discussion drafts of antitrust bills that would force the big tech companies to change parts of their business model and curtail large acquisitions. They could require business model overhauls for Apple and Amazon by limiting their ability to operate marketplaces for products and apps while selling their own goods and apps on those those same stores. The draft bill comes after a 16-month investigation by the House Judiciary Committee on Antitrust. So this goes back into the Trump era. It's like this, this was written June 10th, and so a year and a half ago. So this started under the Trump administration. The draft bill comes after a 16-month investigation by the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust into the four companies, which accumulated in a nearly 450-page report from Democratic staff last fall. Republicans on the subcommittee diverged from some of the Democrats' more extreme proposals. Several agree with the main findings of monopoly power and anti-competitive behavior in the Democratic report and on the need to rein in the big tech power with antitrust reform. Specifically, the five discussion drafts would prevent platforms from owning businesses that present a conflict of interest, bar large platforms from favoring their own products over those of competitors that rely on their sites, make it harder for large platforms to complete mergers, raising raise filing fees for acquisitions, and mandate ways for users to transfer their data between platforms. That is what that article was about. I would like to know, obviously, a lot more details into all of these things, like mandate ways for user to transfer data between platforms. What does that mean? Like, it's going to make it easier or it's going to make it harder to transfer data? Harder. So I can almost guarantee it's harder. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it's, right. I think it's pretty sure it's going to be harder to where it's like Google can't transfer to Facebook, can't transfer to the the Amazon can't transfer to Apple to where it's like one collects the data and then it all gets spread everywhere um, to where they, the smaller guys that don't have that information can't compete. Wow. I mean, it, it's going to be interesting because one of the biggest values, and you and I have spoken about this countless times, that social media platforms and all these companies have is the power of the data, right? It's not, you know, oh, they sell membership or they sell ads or no, it's the data. You know, the data that they compile is what allows them to understand how to sell better to you. Where is the public going? Where's all this? It also helps them understand, like, what products does the public want? What things do people need or want that we can create to provide better lifestyles, better, you know, everything? And yes, within all that, you're going to have a lot of bad shit as well, right? I mean, it's never all unicorns and rainbows. So... I don't know. I mean, uh, do you agree with this kind of antitrust bill? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts? Because you're kind of well, against big tech companies and stuff, Well, right? I mean, I think it, it not it's against them, but it's also the, the power that they, they harness it because they go unchecked for too long. And then, like, you already see it to where it's like they become, I mean, across I mean, all the political spectrum, they all troll politics. And if one sector gets too big, I think you're going to have caused a lot of problems to where like if you just have four companies when you just look at like a company like paypal as a larger market cap because it's a technology company than all the u.s banks mm-hmm. or it's like you look at their business models like yeah banking seems way more diversified from a profit model or from a business model than paypal but then why is paypal worth so much more because it's a technology company and same thing with apple amazon facebook and uh netflix and not so much netflix um 
because they just deliver content for the most part. But these other companies where it's like, yeah, if they garnish power and they won't let it go and like, no, they, they stifle innovation, they stifle economies. Like it's good for them, but it's not good for the overall economy. So I think it is one of the things that where if they are finding anti-competitive things, it's like you, you need, you can't stifle competition. So if you're getting to a point to where when you're small and you have a platform that's like, Hey, I'm going to favor my products over somebody else. When you get so damn large that it's like, no company can come out because you, yeah, you can come to my site, but all my shit's coming first. And it's like, then nobody can grow and compete ever against that company because it's like, you have to go through them to sell well, I mean, your products. And, and, and it's like, you try to rise, you're like, mm, no, slap your hand and you stay down there. Or they acquire you. Yeah. They leverage you up. Whatever they do the the to buy out your company to buy it up to where it's like, oh, all the power stays with us. And Amazon has already pretty much been doing that. With you go on Amazon, let's say you search for batteries. The first, I don't know how many batteries they're going to show you. They're all Amazon batteries, yeah. right? They show you their products first, then everybody else's. But don't you think that's also, I mean, the benefit of owning the company that you put oh, your I, shit I do first? Agree. And that's what I said. And I, but to a point to where you stifle, you get so damn big that nobody can ever compete with you. Or like, but isn't that what creates innovation? Because then when it gets to a point that nobody can compete with you because you're not allowing it, a new platform emerges or a new option emerges where people can compete freely? Not if they don't let you grow because now they have the political power to keep you from, to put out regulations to stifle those. Or it's like this platform, so mm, then we, need, we need that. We they don't. already have that. They already have the power to do that. So then how do we know that these policies are really in our best interest then if they already have the power to manipulate politics? Because obviously they don't have that much. It's like it, it's... Not controlled all the way trillions across. of dollars. You don't think they have that much? Oh, yet? I'm sure they have a, a, a pretty good grasp on politics. Yeah, but I don't think they have a complete grasp on politics. And that's the great thing. So you though. think they need to get even bigger in order to do that? And I think that's yeah. And that's I think what they're trying to prevent getting so big that it's just like a new candidate comes out to try to run for political office, and it's like mm, nope, we cut the funding from the public sector for donating to these campaigns and only corporations can now judge it because they've infiltrated into the political system and got laws passed over long periods of time of getting one politician here, another here, another here, another here, funding these campaigns, getting them to where they want to be, to where it's like, we want to change the way people are elected. Where the small person, like the uh, an independent person, couldn't come against our candidate. So our candidate always wins. And then, like, so when we want something, a new platform's coming up, mm, we need a law coming out to make that illegal somehow. Or a state license doesn't get issued. Or some distribution chain, like, like I think that's what they're trying to get ahead and preventing. And I think it's like, yeah, they do have political power, for sure. I mean, so you don't get in, that large without of, having it. Let, let me present this to you, because I agree. I agree. Right? What? Yeah. Um, to a certain extent. Because... The reason we have, a, because once a company gets so big, let's say like Amazon, there's a point where it actually becomes more affordable for people. They, they make things more affordable. They make things cheaper. They make things more beneficial for people, right? So I'm, I'm torn in that regard where it's like, I'm not against companies growing as big as they freaking want to be, yeah. right? I'm not against that at all. But yes, I am against them. Like as soon as a company looks like a rival, they can just put their foot on them and they're done, right? They can drown them in whatever. They become a bully in the market, essentially. And I'm 100% against that. 
So let's say they start banning because last I had read an article about a month ago or so that they wanted to start banning uh, mergers for companies that are worth a hundred billion or more. If a company is worth over a hundred billion, they are no longer allowed to do any mergers, right? Because they're Not very much either. I agree. That being said, what am I looking at? Is that what if instead of mergers, they do more of like integrations with these companies, where it's like we're not absorbing you but you can partner with us and have access to our platform and vice versa but you're still your own business like do you feel that's kind of like a little loophole or an advantage to that other company oh, that's illegal though because now you're talking uh not a monopoly but a duopoly or it's like hey i'm gonna fix my price you're gonna fix your price we can co- we can work together no no and- not fix not fix i'm not talking about oh, that i'm talking about have- like partnerships like you know the amazon wants to buy a company that has whatever like instead of buying the company and merging with them it's like hey you know let's partner and we'll also give you you know we'll put your product on our site but we don't have to absorb you you understand we'll put that software that service that you provide on our site so people have access to it, but that service is going to be only accessed through your company, but it's part of, you know, Amazon can provide it as well. I mean, I'm sure. That, I don't know. Like, I'm just that, coming well, up with no, this that, shit. That kind of know. stuff happens, I think, already to where it's like, yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of companies that partner together for certain types of things and you hear about them starting and falling apart all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually because they can't afford to do it themselves. But these technology companies have such massive I mean, that's why there's so much innovation in the tech space is because they have all the financial resources in the world. Where I mean, freaking Tesla's worth over how many hundreds of billions of dollars where like they're still speculative. In I a know. Sense. Your, your boy from uh, the big short, Michael Gurley. Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. Gurley? He has a massive short position. Well, against he had, Tesla. Well, he had it at the beginning. of He's made a shitload of money off of it, too, because he put it in January. I thought December, he still January. had it. I could have sworn I heard something he recently know, of him saying I mean, like. Well, he, we did an article on it, but it was yeah. from no, 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 I, before, yeah. and it was he disclosed that he had had a short for that long. So like he had a short from, and he's like Tesla's already dropped twenty thirty percent. But anyways, yeah, you have all this money to where it's like Amazon, like mm, they're gonna like they can't find a hosting service or web service. So, but we're so profitable and have so much money, we can raise so much money because of who we are. We're just gonna go build it ourselves. And so now it's like, we don't need to partner with somebody. We can build it for ourselves cheaper. And they can hire so the best people for it. And they it. can hire the best people because they have all the money. Yeah. So I think that is a problem towards like, there's been so much money that's been conjugated, conjugated in concentrated. That's what I was, in oh, that, I was like, that's a, okay. <laughs> um, concentrated in that sector for so long that they have almost unlimited power to do kind of whatever they want. Uh, when it comes to those things where it's like, we could partner with that company, but let's just go ahead and put them out of business by building our own company or, or building our own services. Because, I mean, Amazon, they just, like, they used to just distribute products. That's all they did through the internet is e-commerce. So can't these massive, bringing it back to real estate, can't these massive home builders essentially do the same thing to their mom and pop home builders? Because they can go and develop whole d- developments right? They can get government grants. They can get city grants. They can get all this. So with all that, they can develop at a profitable price. They can buy quant- a large quantities of everything so they get better pricing. So then when we have the market that we have, single family home builders that are building maybe a few homes or, you know, infill lots, like, don't you think that's kind of 
no. an unfair advantage? No, because those big home builders can't profitably build three houses. Exactly. In one spot. They can't profitably build they don't a need single to, house. They don't That's need to. I said, to. but then, like, they couldn't do, like, what do you mean, like, do the same thing? Like, put their foot down on single-family home builders. Well, like the because reasons... they're supplying neighborhoods, they're supplying housing that a single, uh, a single, a smaller home builder can't supply at those prices in those levels. They're gonna have to be, they're gonna have to compete at a different level well, because they can't compete with happens. them. Exactly. Like, yeah, like, but you don't find that that's wrong? Because it's nowhere. I don't think it, you're talking apples and cars. Okay. I think in that scenario. Okay. Where it's like you look at us, like I can't, I still can't build a house at two hundred thousand, mm-hmm. two fifty. Like, but home builders can. Small enough house, you can. Yeah, yeah, but like we can't build at that level because the reason yeah. they're doing that is because they're buy, able to buy huge plots of land, do all the development, and get those prices down. Well, that's, that's because they have like, access to a lot of money. That's also like that's, but we don't build next to a home builder that's doing that. Mm-hmm. And so you look at what we're doing right now for our builders. Like, there's no massive home builder building anywhere close to that. We're doing infill lots. Yeah. So like that's where I think like your small individual is building two, three, four, five. They're not building anywhere close where home builders are because they need massive tracts of land of. Or five hundred acres, but we're going after the same clientele almost. No, okay. Price point, okay. So our price point, like where we're going to be selling the our one project at mm-hmm. our new build, we're like those get that level of house to find that price point. You're going twenty miles outside of the city from where our location is, right? And we're building at a higher price point than what you could afford from the outskirts. Like that's where like. The where to get to that two hundred thousand price point? One, we can't build that low. They're twenty miles outside of downtown, but we can build a. And that's why prices like as they come into the city services and everything, that pricing and housing gets more expensive. So with this other companies that get absorbed by Amazon, or or all of this, you're saying they're they can't compete because they're trying to go after the same clientele that Amazon is going. Because it's they're they're talking about a digital space. Mm-hmm. And online, it's like, it's the same space. It's like saying, I don't know how to relate it to real estate because to me, it's like, it's so far apart to where it's like, I'm going to sell a towel. You're going to sell a towel. Yeah. You're still selling the same product. Well, they're selling a house. We're selling a house. But they're selling, we're selling completely different styles of housing, completely separate locations. And the location okay. is what makes yeah. the price worth what the price is worth. And but then you have, but you also have further location, but you have a brand new home versus a home that was. Now, if we tried to build a single family house. Across the field for a massive development, we would not be able to do it. Right. Yeah, you can't compete. You can't compete. It's like, but a home builder can't compete inside where we're building. Oh, well, they don't want to. I mean, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't buy it's, enough yeah, land. It's like, it's not profitable. Right. So therefore, but Amazon, say, seller A and, or person A and Amazon, yeah. they're trying to sell a towel on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, the same, it's like, okay, so, but my, I need to sell it on Amazon. Well, Amazon goes, okay, we'll let you on here, but your towel is now worth $10 and ours worth three. Same exact towel. What's the consumer going to buy if there's no brand behind it? Yeah. They're going to go for the $3 one. Mm-hmm. So, it's, 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 so that's like us trying to build a house across the street from a massive home builder, and the, but that's the only place that you can build a house. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, that would, but housing isn't that way because houses burn down, you have infill lots, you have houses that are bigger and you get moved down. Like there's a whole different sector of housing that home builders can't touch and we can't touch their space. They can't touch ours. So that's where I think it's, it's completely different to where home builders and there's, there's hundreds and thousands of home builders out there. There's only one Amazon. Yeah. No, no, just trying to poke a little seeing. uh, I don't know how you could monopolize the 
home building space. Yeah. Unless you vertically integrated so much that it's like you own the lumber, you own the mills, you own the distribution, you own it to where you own all of the distribution to where it's like, I'm going to buy all my lumber at $5. I'm going to sell it to you guys for $20. And, but you no, but you if you're one of the, the biggest buyers for those mills and for those suppliers, then you kind of get that preferred, kind of like what we gave the example before with JP Morgan saying, hey, we're going to be holding all, a big cash reserve because we see the Fed raising interest rates. It's kind of one of those things that the Fed needs to think about, like, shit, should we raise interest rates so they don't lose their ass? You know, they control yeah. that. So it's like even these big guys, they'd be like, hey, you need to bump up the price of lumber to squash these little guys because we buy the bulk of your lumber. Yeah, but the problem is there's not anybody that big. Really? I don't think there's – well, there, there's there's new, too many. There's too many people mm-hmm. that are that big that can't – it's like, hey, I buy all your lumber. It's like, okay, then I'll yeah. just go beat my lumber for somebody else. Or it's like there's multiple national distributors of lumber. There's multiple places that you can get it. To where it's like I'm sure that they pay significantly less in lumber than what we pay from where we're at. And we pay less than what a consumer buys to build a little shit in their backyard. For so sure. like it goes by that volume. But I think it's like the home building space is a crowded space. Like you can just drive out down in some of these places on the West San Antonio driving down the road. There's like 20 different home builder signs on the side of the roads. Yeah. So like, and they're all building in the same areas, competing against each other. Right. It's like we're competing against like small independent people building new houses near where we're building. So, I yeah. think that is, and that is one thing I think that we're able to still do because I think we're still able to build cheaper than some of these builders because there is a new home build development going near one of our properties within a couple miles, and they're selling much smaller lots, same size of housing, much more squashed together, and they're selling into the three hundreds, and we're targeting under three hundred. So it's like we're still out competing on price point, even though we're in the same area, because their pre-development costs the land of developing all the roads, doing all that junk that takes to do that. It, it, it still drives the cost up yep. for them to get their margins. I think we're still able to compete well, there. I hope you guys are enjoying the, the back and forth just to kind of help you guys understand different points of view, how to look at businesses differently, how to look at, you know, what these large tech companies are doing versus what you know, real estate market is doing, how to protect yourself, how to prepare for it. Um, we, you know, the whole point is that is like trying to push the envelope in different levels and help you start thinking differently from what you normally expect. Um, with that being said, I, I kind of want to hit a, a somewhat uh, WTF segment here is uh, I don't know if you heard the stories, but a uh, shoplifter. And oh, I saw that. You saw that? I think it was, what was it? San Francisco or yeah. something? He went into a Walgreens and took it with his bike, rode his bike into Walgreens with a garbage bag and started filling up the garbage bag with stuff. You had the security guard there standing there filming them. Nobody did anything to the guy. Nobody tried to stop him. Nobody did anything. The guy just filled up his bag and rode right out. And I was like, what the the hell is happening here? I saw another article. Um, I think it was... I don't remember where I found it, but I actually went into a video and Walgreens and like some of these big companies and stuff like that that serve those products, they've closed like 17 stores. Walgreens mm-hmm. has closed 17 stores in San Francisco over the last year or a couple five of years, years, five years because yep. of just like, no, like, this, like there are too much danger. The profit margins aren't there. Nobody's doing anything like about this where like, cause like, and I was, re- they went over, um, Smaller individual people are yeah. like, we're kind of off to fend for ourselves because the DA just basically said like, eh, 
if it's under $950, we're not going to prosecute somebody. There's nothing really wrong with it. you. You get a slap on the wrist and you can go back at your way. There's no real disincentive. But then you say we are out to fend for ourselves, but you can't do that either because yeah. then if you do anything, that's illegal. Yeah, it's like or if you were to punch that person to get violent, it's like now you're the one in trouble. Which you got to get violent because that person, you can't say, oh, excuse me, sir, can you please put that stuff back and, and leave the store? Yeah, no, okay. somebody's going in there to cause harm, like to yeah. commit a crime, to steal, and like you confront them about it. It's like you can't do anything about it. Yeah, so they pull a knife. And then you shoot the person to defend yourself in those areas, you're the one that's getting in trouble. And another thing they were saying that Walgreens in California is spending 35 times more on security guards than their stores in other cities in the U.S. And it's like you're spending 35 times more, yet the security guards still don't do anything about it. Like, what is this about? Like, what did a policy come out that I missed? Like, what, what's this about that you cannot protect your own property anymore in California. Like, well, no, you what's... Can, I mean, you can protect it, but it depends on how you protect it. Or like somebody, you can't, you can shove somebody out the door and not let them back in. They trip on the door edge and twist their ankle. They yep. sue you. Yep, they could. Very well could. And it's like the same thing in California. Like if somebody comes into your house and you were to, like I remember hearing a while ago that somebody tried to sue somebody that broke into a house and they cut themselves on a knife and they tried to sue the homeowner. <laughs> for not protecting the knife. Like, so there's a lot of things out there. And yeah. like, what really started was like they're decriminalizing. We talked about this. Like the new um, buddy of mine sent this out from uh, Seattle, lives in that area. And he's like the new untouchables to where it's like it was they decriminalize it. There's no penalty for it. Where it's like, hey, if it's under $1,000, we think this is part of the systemic racism because once they start getting into these these paths of these – it holds them back in their careers, and then you have this whole cycle thing. So now there's like, well, let's just not charge them with things, and that should make things better. But now it's now you have this problem where it's like, well, now there's no disincentive not to commit the crime. Well, they just go in and steal it anyways, and now so, they don't have to worry about it. And this is something – And go in with a bicycle, fill a trash bag, and walk right out the same. door. There was another guy. He just like walked into a convenience store and just picked up as many drinks and foods and things as he could and just, just didn't even run out the door. He just picked they it up and just, just just walked right out they the door. They know the law better than most people know. <laughs> they know that you can't touch them. So it's just one of those things that like you you look at it and how does this tie into real estate? Is that if you're a real estate investor, these are things that are going to affect – the economy in those areas because like he says you know they've shut down 17 stores store owners are leaving i saw another article related to this that they were talking about how many um minority owned businesses get vandalized consistently and there's nothing that they can do about it because nobody will do anything about it so it's like you're having small business owners large businesses everybody's getting vandalized it's getting you know hurt if it's uh, under 900 we won't do anything it's like okay but enough 900 hits starts hurting your profit drastically yeah right if that and that's even if they don't harm everything else in the store so you're looking at this so you're saying well how does this affect real estate like you got to go places where they actually have some rules and regulations and laws prohibiting people from doing shit like this you know or at least allowing people to defend themselves against people like this because if not those are the areas that shut down more businesses those are the areas people want to leave because they become higher in crime rate they become higher in all that because you can't touch the people so i mean i don't know i read that and i was like wow this is california is just it still keeps surprising me even though it shouldn't of how crazy uh the things get over there you know what i mean they, and i've recently heard like some massive hotel some very expensive hotel all of a sudden, uh, stroke a deal with the city where now they give free rooms to the homeless. Like, 
wow, you know, it, beyond insane. Um, but I, I did say a question in here from Sam. He puts, uh, why are more developers building more small multifamily units here in San Antonio? I think multifamily isn't profitable. It doesn't sell. Unless, well unless you're building apartment buildings. And that we are seeing. We are seeing a lot of developers do like luxury apartments and everything like we talked about before on the San Antonio Creek. No, San Pedro Creek. Yeah. Uh, that they redeveloped that whole area. So we are seeing luxury apartments going up, yeah. but anything under that just it's like it's not small profitable. multifamily units. It just like they don't build it. They haven't built it for long periods of time. Like one of the market ports I do is like that is always the area that underperforms. It's like I think it was like something like ten multifamily two to four unit permits were pulled in San Antonio in over a month. Like only ten houses. So it's like they leave it to small developers to do because it's more profitable to build single family homes on large tracts of land right. than build a ton of duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes. Yeah, they either do, and you if you look at any major development like the one that we talked about last week or the week before that's happening on southwest side of San Antonio, they're building, it's a massive development, but the bulk of it is going to be single family homes. An apartment makes use commercial yeah. buildings. Because- I, just, I just don't think they do because it it's not profitable enough because like the price per square foot mm-hmm. is just it's not there. And then it's also in a de- like who buys multifamily for the cost of construction to get that high? Only investors buy them. Yep. Like not that many people buy and move into. So it's like I just don't. It's just not a trend here. It's it's too expensive to do, and it's not as profitable for big developers to come in here and build a bunch. I've seen some uh, triplexes and duplex neighborhoods, but I mean they're not huge by any means. Yeah. And it's just like it's the quality of lifestyle that like you look when the big boom was it was in the eighties is when you had a lot of multifamily being built the two to four unit uh kind of ho- housing being built but right now it's just like it's it's not people don't want to live there they want they want homes and I think they can build and sell cheaper for homes or do townhomes so when when do you think or when needs to happen for that to become profitable for people to build multifamily like oh, are, I don't know. are we seeing are we needing Home prices to stop rising and rents to catch up. What What do you think would make building? I think it had to be a whole consumer shift. It's like I don't think people the most most people when they think of owning a home they don't want to own a duplex and live in one side and live right next to their tenant. house hack man. Yeah, and hashtag okay, blessed. Yeah, they enough <laughs> bigger pockets people, but not that's not the vast majority. So I think the majority of people don't want to go buy a quad. Oh, no, 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 and live not in one buy, unit and not buy a, no, no, no. So. And I don't know if maybe Sam was referring to that, but um, I'm not even saying that they build the quadplex and they sell it off. I'm saying like you're a developer that builds, pretty much builds to rent, right? Yeah. So you're building these quadplexes and you're keeping them as your rental properties and as prices go up and everything eventually selling, right? So kind of like a hybrid model between building an apartment and building a home. You're building like smaller fourplexes. When would that be profitable to build like fourplex duplex to keep as a passive I mean I think the, the rents would have to come up and, and rents would have to come up and prices have to come down as far as right. the construction aspect goes because when you're doing a quadplex one you have to have the right zoning for it and there's not a lot of zoning for that and then to get a big track of land now you have to do all the pre-development that goes along with that as far as getting utilities to it getting the roads and services that gets very very expensive and, then, um, and that's what we talked about a few episodes back too is the level of the regulation cost and everything from the government from the city yeah. that it's what was it in that moment it was like a fourth at least of what the cost is of building just a home third 
Yeah, it, it, was, it, was a, a lot. it was a huge amount. That's like grand. You're looking at that and you're saying, if it costs you that much before you even break ground on a regular home, on a multifamily home, I'm pretty sure it's going to be worse. You know what I mean? Because now you're talking about, you know, like you're saying, the different tabs. How are you going to bring water, sewer, like even the three homes that we're building downtown. They want each one to have their own tabs, their own lines, their own everything. Yep. That's like, holy crap, the cost that you just added to this is insane. You know, so, yeah, so I hope that helps, Sam. And with that being said, oh, I did want to hit this real quick. So for those of you who don't know, there's a, a, a soccer player called Cristiano Ronaldo. And, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano oh, Ronaldo. That's how you say Like, totally, dude. Um, but he's a Portuguese national soccer player. Uh, big, big influencer. You know, huge influencer in, in the world, pretty much. I mean, not just in soccer. But he sits down for a press conference after a Portuguese game. Uh, they were playing the Euro Cup. Sits down for an interview, and they have Coca-Cola sponsors the Euro Cup. And they had two Coca-Cola bottles. So he sits down, looks at them, and he starts shaking his head, grabs the Coke bottles, grabs them, and puts them pretty much off the table and puts his water bottle. And he says, no Coke, water. That's all he said. That was it. It cost Coca-Cola $4 billion in their market share, him doing that little gesture. $4 billion Coca-Cola tanked because of Cristiano Ronaldo's gesture of doing that. that. That's all it was. That's all he did. But to put this into perspective, why does this matter? And then Paul Pogba... He's a, a French national soccer player, also has a decent following, did the same thing, and now they're calling it Bottlegate. <laughs> they're calling it Bottlegate where they're, uh, they're doing this shit. And Coca-Cola says, they came out with a press conference that said, everyone is entitled to their drink preferences as people have different tastes and needs, right? So they're a very, you know, passive way of uh, addressing that situation. But to give you guys perspective of why that happens, is because Ronaldo has an influence of over 500 million people follow this guy. When you are talking about, like, when people say, oh, why is social media so important? What does it matter? Even as a business owner, influence matters. You know, and this guy has so much influence. And I'm telling you, it was like all of like 30 seconds what he did. Just grabbed it, put it aside, said, no Coca-Cola, agua, just water. Puts the water bottle. That was it. That's all he did. That alone has gone viral. And it cost Coca-Cola, one of the massive companies in the world, $4 billion because of the stock price. It's just, you look no, at it right. and it didn't it's, cost Coca-Cola $4 million. It cost their market cap $4 million. Well, yeah. I'm saying like it. It cost it, the individual it, money who, had their, who bought shares that day. Yeah, they're probably cursing the hell out of Ronaldo. And even uh, the, the trainers and everything came out and saying, you know, our, our, we don't give our soccer players, you know, like Coca-Cola and stuff. They have water in their dressing rooms and stuff. I was like, I'm sure they're not drinking Coke before a game. Yeah. Um, yeah I think that, 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 would, that myth was debunked <laughs> a generation so, ago. I just thought it was a, a very funny and amusing piece of, like, how crazy somebody's influence can get, how it affects such a massive company that's been around for yeah. whoever, you know, an insane amount of time. So with that being said, guys, 
that is it for today. That's our wrap up. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this discussion. Our chat has been very lively. I recommend you guys go back and look at other people's points of views and opinions on a lot of points. They've had some excellent points throughout this episode. And um, and stay tuned. Pay attention. Text info to 210-794-9898 to see all the different options that you get being a part of our community because we have a workshop coming up in August for anybody that lives local on how it is that we manage rehabs. So this is going to be an in-person workshop in San Antonio. Um, So if you're interested, make sure you join our text community because we'll be announcing it there first. What's that number again? 210-794-9898. Got it. There you go. With that being said, guys, thank you all for watching, and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye.